0: All right. Good morning, Orangewood. Good to see you. First Sunday in Advent. Here we go. Here they go. Wow. I wonder how... Hey, you guys, you're going to miss a good sermon, but have a great time, okay? It's going to be good. How many are there out there? Praise the Lord, right? That is so cool. Wow. Wow. Steve Brown would speak at our church, he'd say, he'd dismiss the kids, and he'd say, all right, kids, go to wherever you go. I don't know where they're going, uh, Children's Church, but it's going to be a great time. We're going to be in here. First Sunday in Advent. I love Christmas. I really do. I love Christmas time. I love the Advent wreath. Uh, You you guys did a great job. Thank you for uh, doing that for us. I like uh, Christmas decorations. How many of you like Christmas decorations? Yeah. How many of you like to put up Christmas decorations? Yeah, no. See, there's way less than half, half of you. Uh, but I love Christmas food. I love Christ- time with people. I love time with family. Uh, I love Christmas truth. I love Christmas truth. It always brings us back to the basics and, and it recalibrates us as God's people. So this is going to be a great time as we start a new series. Break in, and as I said uh, last week, each of the staff members uh, uh, here are going to uh, are going to speak on the text that we're going to be looking at, Isaiah nine, verses one through seven. But before we start into that, let's bow our heads and our hearts in prayer this morning. Our great God, we do come into your presence today. We're so thankful that we belong to you. We're so thankful for so many things, who you are, what you've done, that you are our creator, you are our sustainer, you are our redeemer. We thank you as we come here today in worship, as we lift up your holy name, that you are the God of history, that you are in charge, that you're loving, that you're gracious, that you give us so many gifts, preeminently the gift of Jesus Christ. But how we thank you for all of these kids that, that we have in this church family. How we, how we thank you for their potential, for, their, for, for what they mean to us now and what they mean to you and what they will do in the future. Thank you for all of those who are here in this family. Even with our challenges, Lord, we come before you. And I, I thank you for this body that you have put here as a light to the community that you would shine through. And, uh, and so, Lord, we're yours. We belong to you. And we ask that you would speak to us in a powerful way as we gear up, as we ramp up for Christmas. We pray that you would start us out right today and that you would speak to us. So we pray for the one who teaches that you'd forgive him his sins. Use a finite person to communicate your infinite truth because our focus is you today. And so we pray that you would be present as we look into your word. For we pray these things in Jesus' holy name, Amen. Well, I said I like Christmas. I also like Thanksgiving. Uh, we just passed that time. It's a great time. I like the food at Thanksgiving so for all of the same reasons. You can eat yourself crazy and do all these things. I love uh, Thanksgiving. I, I love Christmas, but Thanksgiving was good. I love the story of the guy who walked into a, a store and, uh, who, who, who put, did an email and he said, in this email, he said, for the very first time this year, I did the traditional thing and hunted for my turkey for Thanksgiving. You should have seen the people at public scatter when I shot him, you know? Yeah. Thanksgiving's a great time. Christmas is a great time. In Christmas time, Thanksgiving time, preeminently what we do think about is we do think about people. People come to to the fore when we think about this time. You're already gearing up. Who's going to come over? What you're going to have? Some of you are still exhausted from Thanksgiving. My neighbor said, "I'm not doing this anymore. No more parties, nothing." I said, "Why?" She said, "I'm tired." I said, "Get over it." We need that. We think of people. We think of the family that we'll have, but we do think of others. We think of giving gifts. There's going to be office parties. Some of you are going to be going to office parties. Some of you are looking forward to the office parties. Some of you are not. Uh, You're thinking of neighborhood parties. Some of you are looking forward to those. Some of you are not. We think of kids. I know you like Christmas. Kids are people. And, and I love being with kids at Christmas and watching them run to the gift, open the gifts up, the wonder in their eyes. I love to see them play with their gifts and fight over their toys and all that. It's it's great. We're going to be with kids. We're going to be with those who are less fortunate. Uh, people, people, people. But a lot of the people that we will be around are going to be family. Again, for positive or for negative. Christmas is about being around those people. The story of this uh this uh old guy in Phoenix who called his son in New York on December 23rd. And he said, Son, I don't want to ruin your day, but I just want to tell you your mother and I are getting a divorce, and uh and that that's it. And 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 the son got very upset, and he said, Dad, he started yelling at his dad over the dad, you can't do this. It's ridiculous, you're not gonna do this. And he said, Why are you doing this? We just can't take it anymore. We can't stand each other and we're getting a divorce. Call your sister. And he hung up on his son. And so he immediately calls his sister up and he says, Hey, dad and mom are getting a divorce. And she she gets very upset. It's not going to happen. She goes, she goes just, just wait, I'll call you back. She hangs up on him. She calls Phoenix, talks to her dad, said, dad, what do you think? He said, I can't stand anymore. We're just getting a divorce. That's it. It's over. It's done with. And she said, don't you dare do anything. My brother and I will be there tomorrow. Don't you do anything. And she hangs up on her dad. Dad turns to the wife and says, honey, they'll both be here for Christmas and they're paying their own way. <laughs> Christmas. it's about people. It's about persons, isn't it? It really is. It's about persons, about people. but But what we want to focus on in this Advent time is the person of Jesus Christ. And our promise to you is that if you will focus on the person of Jesus Christ, it will set the stage for everything else. It will recalibrate everything else about your life. Because once Jesus is in center stage of our lives, everything gets into perspective. And the text that we're gonna be unpacking together is about Jesus and how he is the center of history. I, I, I think Advent developed by the people of God over the years, so, and, and of course, most of us know historically that Jesus was not born in December, He's probably born in the summer. And, and, and the reality is, is that the church moved it to December for several reasons. But I think uniquely, it has the ability, uh, Christmas and, and, and Advent, as we flesh out four weeks before we celebrate Christmas, that we get, to, we get to think, we get to focus, we get to slow down, we get to focus on what's really important. Jesus said it, didn't he? When asked, what are the greatest commandments? Love God and love people, Persons. I like how Chuck Swindoll put it years ago. He said, we tend to love things and use people, but the reality is we need to love people and use things. Christmas, Advent, these four weeks, help us to recalibrate, to look ahead, to reset, to refocus on Jesus who broke into human history, into space and time and our lives and your lives and my life. He broke in. And nothing has been the same since him. Since he came, nothing's been the same. And we get to focus upon that. And we're going to look particularly at the person of Jesus as we see in Isaiah. Isaiah 9, 1 through 7 is our jumping off point. And I want to read the text and then I'll unpack it for you as we look ahead to the person of Jesus and become relentlessly Jesus-centered at this time of the year. Here it is, Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. This is God's holy word. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness. On them, the light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they're glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. to establish it, and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's holy word. Thanks be to God. What an incredible prophecy this is. And to put it into perspective, we need to remember that Isaiah the prophet was a prophet primarily to the southern kingdom of Israel called Judah. Uh, and his prophecies go from about 740 BC to 681 BC. I knew you were wondering about that, so I thought I would tell you. But Isaiah served under four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And he served under those kings prim- who were kings in Jerusalem. It's said that Isaiah was the son of Amos and uh, Amaziah, a future, a past king of Israel, had a father by the name of Amos also. So it could well have been that Isaiah's brother was uh, Amaziah, a king, and, and that Isaiah himself lived in Jerusalem and understood what it meant to live in the very center of political power and to speak truth to power. And that's what Isaiah is doing. And as I unpack this text, as he tells us, as he prophesies the future, and of course, prophecy is for foretelling, but it's also foretelling. Most of what the prophets did was speak to their times, simply uh, foretelling, speaking to the people of God. Sometimes they did some foretelling. In this passage, we see it all. And I want to unpack the three phases here. What Israel should have been before the time of Isaiah, what Israel was at the time of Isaiah, and then what Israel will be after the time of Isaiah. Uh, So let's unpack that in those three phases. And first of all, I want you to see here in phase one, Israel as it should have been by the time of Isaiah, 650 years before Christ. What should Israel have been? Well, you have to go back to Exodus for that. And as we go back to Exodus, dialing back in history to 1450 BC to the time of Moses, We find in Exodus chapter 19, about seven weeks after the exodus from Egypt, about seven weeks, Moses is called up to Mount what? Mount Sinai. And while Moses went up to God, it says this, God says to him, thus, Moses, you shall say to the house of Jacob, These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. You know what I've I've come to see is that uh, what Israel should have been by the time of Isaiah is that special people, right? They should have been that peculiar, unique people of God that shone the light of God right there in Israel. By the way, all of history, uh, all of history is Well, it's kind of a cliche. It's his story, right? It's God's story. So sometimes we think of redemption history, and then we also think of mankind's history. But the reality is that all of history is the history of redemption. All of human history and all of the many different history books that you could possibly read, really all of those histories are sub-histories of the grand narrative that we talked about last week, creation, fall, rebellion, Those are the first two phases. But after the rebellion, even in Genesis chapter 3, even at the time when the curses were being meted out, God gives the first hope of the gospel, called the proto-evangelium by theologians. The first sign of the gospel, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Now, the heel of the The heel will be bruised, but the serpent will be crushed. The first picture of the gospel of the seed of the woman who would come and bring redemption and and, and bring that's the hope, that's that's the promise. So the first phase is creation fall, but then we see the promises of God and the hope of God and the hope of God uh, that He would redeem. And redirect all of human history and make it what he intended it to be would come through Israel. And it's important for us to remember that because we tend to forget God. God had given Israel that centerpiece in that little country. And if you've been to Israel, you know, at its widest point, it's 60 miles wide, about 200 miles long, small, very small. But think about how central it is, because if you're in Egypt and you want to get to Europe, and you don't go across the Mediterranean Sea, where do you have to go through? You have to go through Israel. If you're in Assyria and Babylonia, and you want to get to Egypt, where do you have to go through? You have to go through Israel. It it, it, it is said that Rome, all roads led to Rome. That's a a cliche of history. It's true. They did, generally speaking, at a certain time in history, but it can also be said that all roads went through Israel. Why? Why? Because the people of God were redeemed by God's grace out of Egyptian bondage so that they could be a light right there. You know, in in, in the Great Commission, we are told to go. The Great Commission in the Old Testament was that they were sent there to stay and be God's holy people. Live it right. Know the commands of God. Worship aright. The temple was up on the hill. Jerusalem. A modern, a wonder of the ancient world that shone brightly of the people of God, the truth of God, of the real God of the universe who would one day put the world back together by bringing redemption. So what was Israel to be before Isaiah? They were to be a holy nation, holy nation. But they weren't. Uh, As we prepare uh, for christmas it 's important for us to to get the flow of history right, because the break in of Christ is so important. Phase one, what was Israel to be before Isaiah? They were to be that holy nation, that that city set on a hill, that light, uh, but as we see, they failed in their mission, but is God is God thwarted absolutely not because God moves all the pieces of all of history all of the time He is large and in charge. So we move to phase two which is Israel at the time of Isaiah. What were they? They were a colossal failure. In chapters 1 through 8, I'd love to do a review of chapters 1 through 8, but we don't have the time. Chapters 1 through 8 is the doom and the gloom mixed with promise. Because because what Isaiah was sent to do was to tell people of the doom and the gloom that would come, that God was done, He he was ready to discipline Israel, he was ready to put them in their place and bring them into captivity. The doom and the gloom was coming. They were a, they were a dark people. They were a difficult people in phase two, as we see in Isaiah 1, 9. It was, it was broken. And, and so by Isaiah's time, 650 years before Christ, he says, it's going to be awful. And it was. 722 BC, Assyria swept out of the east and came over and took the northern 10 tribes of Israel into captivity. 586 BC, Babylonia came and swept the southern kingdom into captivity and took them away. And, and this was prophesied. And, and by Jesus' time, it was an accomplished fact. In fact, they'd already come back. Uh, it was doom and gloom. Nevertheless, there was hope. There was hope uh, in this really, really broken world. And the break-in of the Messiah had to come to dispel the doom and the gloom. And that's what this text is all about. And so the break-in is coming because God moves all of the pieces of history all the time, on time. And, and, And so we get to phase three, Israel as it will be after Isaiah. And what a powerful thing it is. A wonderful counselor would come into this world. Let me unpack these verses a little bit as we go through it. Verse one, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish, In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now, if you know, if you've ever wondered why those maps are in the back of your Bible, they're not for just distracting you in the midst of a boring sermon, right? So if you don't like your sermon, you go, I used to do this. And if you're looking at maps, it's better than going to sleep. But if you look for Zebulun and Naphtali, those are the northern two tribes just west of the Sea of Galilee, of the Jordan River. And and here's the prophecy that in the former time, he brought contempt to those areas. Yes, they were taken into captivity. They went into Assyria. Zebulun and Naphtali are two of those tribes of what are today in the northern section of Israel called Galilee, or as Israelis like to call it, the Galilee. Uh, because Israel was disobedient to God, they went into captivity. Uh, but in the latter times, he's made glorious that area. Absolutely true. Where was Jesus born? In. Not trick question. Bethlehem. Where was he raised? What city? Nazareth. Where's that? In the Galilee. Where did he start his ministry? In the Galilee. Where did he base his ministry? At the Sea of Galilee. He had a place at the beach. That's where he started his ministry in the Galilee. Those living in darkness have seen a great light, and he's made that area glorious. I love what it says in verse 2 The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Terrible, terrible things happen. In darkness, when there's absolute darkness, terrible things happen. In darkness, what happens is that we trip and we fall. When we're in darkness, I don't know about you, but if the lights go out in your house, you're likely to bump into something. Something's sharp, something's gonna hurt you. In darkness, when we live in darkness, theological darkness. We have ignorance of the God of the universe and we build lives that are destructive. The people living in darkness mess up their lives. I I love what my son uh, gave me the other day, duck hunting. And I always had this headlamp. Hey, yeah, let's, let's let's crank out the lights here for a second. All right, everybody, I want you to get up and walk out of here right now. This is my new duck hunting lamp. I can see you guys all the way up there. This is so cool. I usually have this very bad. I used to have this very little lamp. Now I went out duck hunting on opening day. I could see the shore. I could see everything. I could see where my son was about ready to drive us into the wall. All right. We ought to have the lights back probably. You see, in darkness... In darkness, not only are we destructive of ourselves, but we're destructive of other people. We can't see. We don't know where we're going. And we need light. And the people who are living in darkness will see a great... The problem is, is that when we're in theological, moral uh, darkness, when we're separated from the God of the universe, we we don't realize it. We see regular light. We think we're doing okay. We think we're making great decisions, and we're not. Cultures think they're doing the right thing, and they're not. And so the reality is, is that light will come. And it can only come with Jesus. And I don't know about you, but biblically speaking, when I see this prophecy, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. I go right to John one in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He, Jesus was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and apart from him, nothing is coming to being that has come into being in him was life and the life was the what the light of men. Ladies, the word there in the Greek is anthropos, which means male and female. So it's you too. The light of all of us. Jesus is the light of the world. Uh, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it, John said. And the word comprehend is actually a, a better translated overcome. It's not like the world didn't understand Jesus. Like, who is he? The world, what it's saying is they understood that he was calling people to his authority. The world has never been able to overcome Jesus Christ. And the world will never be able to overcome Jesus Christ because he is the light of the world. He is the light that we need and and the light that brings salvation. I love Mark 1, 21. They went into Capernaum, which was in Galilee in the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. They went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Why? Because Jesus, when he spoke, you felt the power, you saw the gaze, you knew that he was somebody other Look what God will do for Israel, verse three. You have multiplied the nation. Yeah, this is fulfilled. This was fulfilled. Uh, by the time of Jesus, it is said there were over 600,000 Jews in Jerusalem alone, maybe up to a million Jews in Jerusalem alone. Yeah, after the 70-year captivity, what did he do? He expanded the nation of Israel. Um, there's many Jews in Israel today, as there are in America. Uh, he's expanded the nation, verse three B. You've increased their joy. Yeah, because of the Messiah and the Jews will one day rejoice and we will together with them rejoice like at the harvest Two, two of the great times of rejoicing in the Old Testament times are when the harvest was brought in because the barns were getting empty and the cupboards were getting bare and all finally we got all the food. Yeah, let's party. Another time is when you won the battle and you picked up the spoil of the enemy. He says, take a look at that. You've increased their joy. Yeah. I don't know what your view of God is. He loves to bring joy to you, to his people. He is not out to make your life miserable. He's out to build us. He's a joy bringer, not a joy destroyer. Now he gives some specifics why they experience joy. Verse 4. God delivers the people from captivity for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his oppressor, the rod of the oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. He reflects back to the time of Gideon when they were released from the Midianite over overpowering over force of the Midianites and, and, and God will one day take all of the oppressive power uh, from Israel away. Then it says the people of Israel are happy because the war will cease. Verse 5, for every boot of the tramping warrior, every garment rolled in blood will be burned with fire. The Jews are going to be happy one day because there will be no war. I'll be happy about that too. One day, no war. All of the weapons of war, everything burned up, done away, it's over. Um. I have a friend, uh, we are at dinner this past week and we were talking about she reads novels and, and she gets about halfway through a novel and she, re- she goes to the end of the book. Now, I don't understand that. I, I really don't. I mean, a good novel is supposed to create a bunch of tension, isn't it? And then bring you through the resolution at the very end. And part of the joy is enjoying the tension. But she says, I can't stand that. I, I wanna control it. I wanna know. And so she goes to the end of the story. And I, I've just been thinking about that all week. I don't get that. It's not why I read a novel or watch a movie. I want to enjoy the process, and, except with real life. Ah, because when I'm sitting with somebody who's really going through it, or when I'm really going through suffering or pain, sometimes I think, ah, oh, this it. I can't. I need to know how this works out. That's what I go to the book of Revelation. And we are called by Isaiah to, in a sense, look ahead to the end of the story so that we can see this point of the story that we're in right now is not going to kill us and crush us because the story, the life, the process really does end well, doesn't it? I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the new heaven and the first earth passed away and there's no longer any sea. I saw the new city the new Jerusalem coming down, the new heavens and the new earth. The tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them. And he, catch this, he will wipe away every tear. Every tear. Guys, even though you wipe those tears away, men, before anybody sees them, he knows. And even with us guys, don't like to cry. He's going to deal with it. No longer any mourning, no crying, no pain. The first things have passed away. At Christmas, it's important for us to remember that we expect far too much out of this world. And that we're called to look ahead to the next. That the end of the story is in Revelation. Revelation. not after we get the new job or the new spouse or the lottery wins or you foodies have found a new dish or you techies have found uh, something new tech. The world always over promises and under delivers. Always. It's the job of advertisers. Jesus always abundantly promises and overdelivers. Always. The, re- the reason the book of Revelation, you and I can't really fully understand it all, is it's put in such metaphorical language because he wants us to get the great big point. God wins. God wins extravagantly, and his people win with him. And it's just too great to grasp, so he puts it in metaphorical languages like, streets of gold? Wow. Now, the main reason... And I'm going to wrap up with this before we take communion. And this is the prep for communion. The main reason Israel is going to be happy is a son will be born to them. The government will be upon his shoulder and he will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. The staff is going to unpack those. I'm going to, I'm going to take wonderful counselor. If it, if I'd thought about it more intensely, I would have had Mark the shark, who is our counselor. I would have had you do the counselor, your own trained counselor and a licensed counselor. I would have had you do wonderful counselor, but I didn't think about it. So I'm doing it. You'll have to clean up the mess next week when you preach. But, but a son is born and a child is given. And there are four groupings of, of titles. Some theologians say there's six, five names for God. Some say six names for God. But the best scholarship is there's four uh, dual names. Jesus, who is coming, the Messiah who's coming, is a wonderful counselor. And I love that he is a wonderful counselor. Now, these are not names by which Jesus will be called. These are titles by which we see how good he is, how great he is. He is a wonderful counselor. And each of these titles has a, a dual aspect it has a divine aspect and has a very human aspect. When Jesus is called a wonderful counselor, when the Messiah is called a wonderful counselor, the word wonder, pele in the Greek or Hebrew, is this idea of somebody who does miracles and only God could do miracles. Jesus is a wonder, He's wonderful. He's almighty, like Psalm 78 says, that God does wonders. Jesus did wonders. Healed the sick, raised the dead, gave sight to the blind. Raised the dead, uh, powerful. Jesus is that way, amazingly. As you look at Jesus, even in his teaching, he's a wonder. Full counselor. But don't think in terms of therapy. Don't think in terms of your therapist as it speaks of Jesus as the wonderful counselor. Think of him as the king of the universe who sits at the right hand of the throne of God on high. And because of who he is and what he's done, think of him primarily as, as a king, as a wonder who doesn't need any human counsel. He has his own counselors himself. Presidents, prime ministers need many, many counselors. Jesus needs none. And as such, at Christmas, we look at the disturbing conflicts around the world. And it's important for us to remember that he's a wonderful counselor in the sense that he is a king who needs none of us to tell him what to do. Thank you very much. He knows what he's going to do in all of the hot spots of the world and the cold spots of the world that will get hot. He's a wonderful counselor. Rest at Christmas in his control. He's a wonderful counselor. He's born of a virgin and therefore he has no sin at all. Therefore, everything he has to say is perfect. Everything, we don't have to, we don't have to mess with Jesus' words. Just take them as they are. Yeah, yeah. You never need to put a filter in what Jesus says on every subject. He will counsel you for building life. I'm coming to see that more and more. Took me a long time. He's a wonder of a counselor in that his teachings can be accepted. Read the Gospels. I know Christmas is about a baby, but a baby who grew up. Who counsels us so much so that Jesus could say, if you hear my words, and you build your life upon them, you're like a guy who built his house on the rock. And sometimes you think Jesus overstates the case. You can never over, Jesus can never overstate the case. He's a wonderful counselor, and everything he tells us is right. Getting married, you need a wonder of a counselor to make that work. Been married since the time of the Apostle Paul, and things are a little flat. Don't tell him what you need. Ask him what you need. Lord, what, what do I need in my marriage? What do I need in my life right now? What do I need in my spiritual life? He is a great counselor. He's a wonder of a counselor. He's a great listener. But I found that as a great listener over the years, Jesus is also uh, a great reflector back to me. Uh, he listens to me when I pour it out, and then he reflects it back. What I hear you saying, Pete, is this, in true Rogerian style, What I hear you saying is this. But then in William Glasser reality therapy style, he says, now, come on, son, let's talk. He's a wonderful counselor because he doesn't tell me everything I want to know. He tells me everything I need to know. And he builds me. And he'll build you because he's a wonderful counselor. If your life is on cruise control or if your addictions are killing you right now, He's a wonderful counselor. Let me me pull this to a close. If you've never embraced Jesus and you're at the end of yourself because you've messed up your life, like many of us have done without him, and you're ready for some counsel, he's the best one to go to. The only one to go to. As we prepare to take communion, Chuck will be coming up here in just a second, I want to tell you that, that he speaks to us and he speaks to me through the word. I was reading Proverbs 28, 26 the other day. It says, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. And then I was beginning to think through an issue that I was trying to control in my life. Uh, I was trying to figure it out on my own, try to control the situation. I'm not going to go into details. For a whole lot of money, I'll tell you individually what that is. But I, I heard these questions come to my mind. Do you really need to control this situation, Pete? Do you really want to try and control this? Does, does this situation feel, make you feel rejected or insecure or inferior because you're not controlling this? What are the advantages if you just let me deal with this? Wouldn't this be better for you in your life if you just let me deal with this? <laughs> you know what I realized? Those weren't my words. I don't think that way. This was my Lord, the wonderful counselor, shaking his son up a little bit and saying, trust me. And I listened and it got better. A really big guy walked into a clothing store and asked the salesman, do you have anything for a man my size? And the guy said, only pity. (laughs) Um, And I realized we don't have to pity ourselves. I don't pity you. I don't pity the pain or the challenges we because go, we're going someplace. We have a wonderful counselor who's leading us, who promises everything. Elizabeth Elliott said, God never denies our heart's desire except to give us something better. I believe that with all my heart. Better is here and better is coming. Because we have a wonderful counselor who you can trust. Where do you need counsel now? From Jesus. Make an appointment. He's available. And listen. I will too. You take it to heart. Let's pray. What a privilege Lord to know that you are in charge of history and that in your coming and in your death, burial and resurrection for us all has been put right and all will be put right and now we come to you and ask that you would meet us counsel us With your eye upon us, we pray in your holy name. Amen.